Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, Devin Estes released a library called Muzak. I assume that's how it's pronounced. It's M-U-Z-A-K. And this is a mutation library. It's something he's kind of been talking about off and on for some time. So this looks interesting. So a mutation library is something that will modify your code like at the AST level. So it's not going to mess with your Git history or anything like that, or with your Git repo. Then it's So it's modifying the AST and to change like evaluations and, and expressions. And then it's expecting your tests to fail. And so it helps identify, oh, you say you're testing this function, but when I change stuff in that function, your test doesn't fail. So it's helping to identify, as I understand it, gaps in our own tests and problems with that. So you can test your tests. Cool. Also in the news, AppSignal released 2.0 of the reporting tool. Uh, this one's pretty exciting. If you haven't used AppSignal, you may not be interested in this, but AppSignal is an exception reporting tool and uh, other reporting tool. Uh, and 2.0 brings with it out-of-the-box Ecto support. Um, they're overhauling their their agent to be a span-based agent, much like telemetry operates now. Oh, and by the way, it's also updated to use telemetry. And maybe more effective is that they're splitting the library into three libraries. They have a, a, a core Elixir library, a Phoenix-specific library, and if you're not using Phoenix, they have a plug library. Uh, so very helpful for all sorts of different uh, Elixir code bases of all shapes and sizes. So good job, AppSignal. Glad to see that and uh, very happy about the release. Congrats. Um, it looks like Phoenix Live View file uploads were not working for live components, but a PR was just merged. and. My spidey senses are tingling. I feel like a new release is going to drop at any moment. So excited to see that happen. And happy birthday to Credo turns five today. Now, when you think of startups, where they say like 90% of startups fail in the first five years, I'd say a lot of that holds true also for open source projects. They just kind of linger and kind of go nowhere. So it's exciting and, and really gratifying just to see that they're continuing to go and, and move forward. And, you know, we're at work, we're staying caught up with some of the new releases that they have and the new checks that they're doing on our Elixir code. So congrats to them. A new Elixir case study was just published. This one is looking at the collaborative wiki product called Slab. They're using Phoenix on the back end and React on the front end. So give that a read. Yeah, a good quote out of that uh, out of that case study is we, we really value Elixir's ability to build complex systems using fewer moving parts. The code is simpler and the system is easier to operate. I really love it. That sums it up really well to me. Mm -hmm. Also in the news, Tesla version 1.4.0 was released. Tesla, if you haven't heard of it, is an Elixir HTTP library loosely based on Faraday, uh, Faraday being a, a Rails and, and Ruby uh, HTTP library. Uh, it acts as a middleware when processing the request and response cycle, uh, and it does this by defining client-side plugs. Um, so, interesting idea. In the release, there's a new Finch adapter, Finch being an underlying HTTP um, library there, too, and uh, new decoding and encoding middlewares, like uh, especially for handling form URLs. So, cool. Congrats, Tesla, on your new release. Yeah, so the thing just to be aware of with that is that it is a client-side library. So, say you're writing a program that is opening up an outbound HTTP request to another server. So that's where you'd be using something like this. It's an interesting thing. It's not, not going to replace your Phoenix HTTP uh, servers. Right. And Elixir LS version 0.6.2 was released. In this release, there's a, some improvements for Windows users. 
And in specifically interesting is VS Code, where you have stack traces in, in your test or debug output in VS Code. Any file links become clickable in your stack traces. So that's just a nice little handy addition there. Nice. Uh, and Jose Valim wrote a blog post on the Dashbit blog addressing the idea of people saying you don't need Redis when you use Elixir. So as with most things, reality is a little bit more nuanced. Um, really, this this blog post is is a great way to break down what solution fits for what problems. Uh, and so they talk about Elixir, Etz, uh, other caching strategies, and also Redis. So he breaks it out into four cases and gives specific recommendations on, on those situations. It's definitely worth the read. Redis is a great tool, uh, and I love the way he ends it. It's like, basically, if you enjoy using Redis, hey, don't feel bad for it. Uh, it's, a great, it's a great tool. And there's a new binary serialization library called Bear that was released for Erlang. Now you're thinking, we already have binary to term or term to binary, and it very efficiently serializes Erlang data structures. Why would we need this? Well, the goal with this project is to make it more accessible for other languages to serialize and deserialize Erlang and Elixir types. So that makes it easier to send serialized data to Python, Java, Ruby, etc., and have them send data back again. So it's still very early, but it looks like it could be very helpful. And that's it for the news. Today, we're really excited to have with us Louis Pilfold. Louis, thank you for coming and uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I, yeah, I really enjoyed your interview with Quinn the other day. So it's um, nice to be on the show myself. Yeah, so Louis has come on to help talk to us about Gleam. So Gleam is a project that you have created. And we talked previously uh, in episode 16 with Quinn Wilton about her use of Gleam and conference talks and, and things about that. So you can check out that episode. Louis, I'd love to just kind of hear from you just a little bit about yourself before we jump into Gleam and more about some of the new things that are coming out with that. I guess I'll talk around Gleam a little bit. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a sort of London, London-based um, generalist developer who's got quite a passion for languages. And I've written maybe 30 or so languages trying to solve problems over the years. And I've, I've sort of, in writing all these languages, just got really interested in like, how, how do they work and what are the different things offer us? And, and actually, like, how do they shape the way that we think about problems? And it just became a bit of a hobby. And, and as a result, I've, I've, I got very frustrated with all of them, kind of wishing there were different things at once. And now I have decided, okay, I'm going to have to make my own, which is where Gleam came from. Um, yeah, so, so there's that side. And during the day, I am, as of fairly recently, I'm a Rust programmer working for a video game company called Embark Studios, who were lovely. You should, you should check them out. So you called yourself a generalist and then said that you've wrote 30 languages. <laughs> wow. Does, does, does that qualify as a generalist anymore? <laughs> uh, well, I'm just, I'm very easily distracted. Um, and I would like to say I, I'm probably not good at, at almost any of these, but I have tried to solve problems in them. And, it, you know, I, th I think you do pick up some interesting things from, from trying lots of different ways of, of uh, approaching the same set of problems, really. Or at least, at least I tell myself that it makes me feel more comfortable with what I've done. That's cool. So I have a friend who's also very much into languages. He's still going to the university. And one of the languages that he talks about is Racket. And I'm mm. wondering if that's something that you've used, because I understand that's kind of an academic language, but it's also used to help build and model languages. Mm. Yeah, ra Racket's really fascinating. It, it seems to be less of a programming language and more of just like a, a toolkit for inventing your own language. Like I, th I think if you look at the homepage, they have, well, here's if you want to write object-oriented racket, here's how you do it. Or if you want to use dependent types, or here's what you do. Or if you want to use a different syntax, here's what you do. 
Those are like three completely unrelated languages and they all run within the same thing. If, yeah, it feels like I should know Racket, but no, I've, I've, never, I've never done that. Maybe that's the 31st or whatever I'm up to now. That's <laughs> interesting. It's a, an area of computer science I've never really dug into. Mm. I know like if you go through university, a lot of times it's like, oh, you're, if you're in the computer science program, you're doing, let's build a compiler and things like that. It was really strictly to avoid calculus that I ended up changing <laughs> degrees to be more management information systems. So mm-hmm. I minored in computer science. Uh, so I didn't actually do those classes. So that's just interesting that, you know, you find that such a, a fascinating and rewarding area to play. Yeah, I, I sort of stumbled across it by accident as well, because I'm, I'm not a... I'm, I, I, at university, I wasn't a computer science person. I was a biologist. But it turns out biology is, sorry to any of the biologists, but biology is rubbish. <laughs> like, it's really difficult. There's no jobs and they don't pay anything. So I was like, okay, I ended up doing this this computing thing instead. And I, yeah, so I, I was writing a lot of, of tooling in Elixir because like I, I came to Elixir, I found it really exciting and I missed a lot of the tooling that we had in other languages that I wrote like um, Ruby and JavaScript and Haskell and things. So I wrote, a, I wrote, a, I wrote the first Elixir Linter, which is called Dogma. And then I wrote the first um, Elixir Formatter, which was XFormat. Both of these projects are rubbish. Don't use them. But you know they were they were the they were the pioneering ones, and they, they you know it taught me quite a lot about how how um, Elixir worked under the hood and how the compiler worked. And then I wrote a less successful templating language inspired by Slim or or Hamel or all these sorts of things. And I sort of realised if you look at all of these these projects, they're all compilers. You know, one one of them is very focused on parsing and formatting. One of them is very focused on static analysis. One of them is very focused on um, like transforming from one language to another, but they're all compilers. So I was like, oh, I don't like it. I could totally make a language, like an actual language, not a templating language. That's how I got into making compilers. And I'm very, very happy about it because compilers are loads of fun. So I'd love to jump in now and kind of talk about Gleam. Mm. And that might be a good place to get an introduction to how did you start with Gleam? And maybe you could just first give us a sense of what it is. Gleam is the result of my my combined love of Erlang and intense frustrations with Erlang. I love Elixir, I love Erlang, I, I love the Beam particularly in the way that we we build these programs to be fault tolerant and massively parallel and you know using actors and, and quite simple functional programming. All this stuff's really great, but I get frustrated because I miss things that I have in other languages. Like I, I miss the the powerful static analysis that you get in in Rust and, and Haskell and PureScript and all these languages because um, I'm quite, I'm quite a lazy programmer. Like if I can make the computer do the thing for me, why would I want to do it manually? So it's like, well, I've, I've changed this function to return a result or like return a, a tagged tuple. Well, God, why do, well, which bits of my code base do I need to update to, to make that work? Oh, this is going to be a right pain to find all these places. But if you're using Rust, it just goes here, 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 here. And you go, okay. And then you just go to those places and update it. So I, I really wanted that. I really wanted like that that way of writing code with Erlang. Or rather, that, that's something that, that guided the direction Gleam went in. So Gleam is a statically typed language that compiles to Erlang and tries to make use of all of the, the good stuff that the Beam can provide. When we were talking with Quinn, she shared this idea, or rather, I kind of came to this realization through that conversation that it seemed to feel like Gleam is similar to TypeScript. And I wanted to kind of run this by you and see if it's a fair comparison, just as a way of thinking about this. TypeScript is an effort to put a static type system around something that is dynamic and untyped, which is JavaScript. After you go through the compilation and build phase, all of TypeScript is removed. 
there's nothing left. It's just JavaScript. And it sounded like that might be something like how I could think about Gleam. Is that a fair comparison? Um, yes and no. So if, if you if you look at the in the most general sense, yes, this is a this is a language that is quite similar to Erlang. That once it's compiled, becomes regular Erlang. And if you were if you were calling a compiled Gleam module from Elixir or Erlang, it would probably just feel exactly the same as if you're using a normal Erlang library. Like there wouldn't be anything particularly special about it. The thing that makes it a little bit different from TypeScript is that it's kind of built with a different set of constraints in mind. So the the amazing thing about TypeScript and, and why I, I, I think we, we should all respect the developers of TypeScript a lot is that they've managed to make this statically typed language a superset of JavaScript. So all of these programs that are valid JavaScript programs are also valid TypeScript programs. And they've de designed their type system in such a way that you could incrementally um, add it. So you could have a million lines of JavaScript and you can start adding little bits of TypeScript. That, that's really impressive. And, it, and it, doesn't, it doesn't cause there to be a big, a big divide between your TypeScript code and your JavaScript code. That's, that's a, marvel of, a marvel of engineering. But there are downsides to this. You end up with a type system that because it's allowing you to be incremental, you can choose to be less safe. You can choose to be sloppier. You can choose to not have quite so much help from the compiler as you would get otherwise. So Gleam's gone in a different direction. We don't have this idea of, of incrementally applying types to your Erlang code. Gleam actually is more of a different language. It's not a superset of Erlang. Superficially, it has different syntax, but it also has very slightly different semantics. And there's lots of things that you would do normally in Erlang that you can't do in Gleam. But in exchange, like we take that away from you, but then we give you much better feedback and it compiles faster. And, and hopefully we can provide a friendlier experience if you play within our rules. If you don't play within the rules, then you're, you're a little bit stuck, really. So it's just a, it's a different set of pros and cons. Would it be a better comparison with Elm then? I would say Elm probably goes further because it, I don't know if you've ever tried to use Elm code from JavaScript, but that's quite a difficult process because Elm doesn't compile into normal JavaScript. It compiles into some sort of like, you know, it, it just looks like machine generated JavaScript. It's all gobbledygook with functions called like <laughs> underscore, underscore, dollar, <laughs> underscore, Elm three. And you're like, oh, good. Okay. You can't I read know that? What that is. <laughs> Oh, well, I'm, I, as I said, I'm a very lazy programmer, so I've, I've, I've not worked these things out. I think maybe a better comparison would be, I, um, I don't know if you've come across, um, I mean, oh, I think they've renamed it recently, but I've known it as Reason ML and BuckleScript, which are yeah. OCaml to JavaScript compilers, and they, they try to output very um, human-readable JavaScript. And we're doing the same thing, trying to output very human-readable Erlang. Thank you for that clarification. If you were trying to make a case for people who are in the Elixir space and trying to sell Gleam to them, it's like, why should they look at this and be interested in this as something that to spend time on? So I think the, the thing that Gleam brings that is valuable is it brings a different way of programming to the Beam. We've got all these really great languages on the Beam. And they've all got different strengths, like Elixir brings all these really amazing polymorphism features and all these great metaprogramming features. But the actual way of, of how do you manipulate data is very similar to Erlang, but a bit more flexible. The same is true of LFE and, and, and so on. And what I really want to bring with Gleam is this idea of doing developments where instead of um, iterating by comparing your the output of your functions to tests or testing in the, in the REPL or doing these sorts of things, we develop by using the compiler and its static analysis to provide information as we're going. 
So if we design our, if we model our, our problem space sufficiently, sufficiently well using data structures in Gleam, the compiler should then be able to guide us into um, whatever implementation needs to be in a way that's quite easy and friendly and hopefully really fast. And then on top of that, there's all those things that people talk about when they talk about types like, oh, it's really safe. You're going to crash less. I'm like, yeah, those things are nice. But fundamentally, it's just like, this feels different. You know, this is, this is, it's like the difference between like writing tests and doing TDD and, you know, working in a REPL. They're both, they're both really valid and both really useful and, and they work for different people. But maybe try this type driven development. Maybe it'll work for you. So I noticed that you had a recent announcement with Gleam 0.12 that was released. And with mm. that, you announced 0.1 of Gleam OTP. And that sounds like really interesting, um, just because like, as I understand it, uh, message passing and the gen server actor model kind of thing hadn't really been handled by Gleam previously. So can you maybe kind of give us a little bit more information about this and kind of what's going on there? Yeah, so th- this has been something that's been in my mind for many years now and it you know started off as the you know i'm standing in the shower going gosh how on earth are we going to do this people people say it's impossible to type act as a message passing you can't you can't type erlang that's why it doesn't have types how do you do this and very very slowly over over a long time ideas started to form and, and lots of looking at what other languages are doing so the, the the big typed act system which i think took them several years to make is is the typed version of Acker. And there was, there's many things we could glean from there. And I, I sort of came to the conclusion that actually, yeah, we can type OTP. We can make a, a type safe version of OTP that is still useful and can still interrupt with, you know, regular OTP that we all know and love. And so over the last possibly a year, possibly a bit more, I've been implementing lots of different versions of this to say well it, it, you know we could use this abstraction we could we could have um you know a peer a, a peer has a type and that type is the pro, is the kind of message it accepts and all these sorts of things so implementing all these different versions and and hitting into the limitations and then and then talking to people in the community like peter saxon of plum mail and uh, midas and uh, ace you know he's had loads of great ideas um and and you know some members in the elliptical team and stuff and eventually we got to a point where I think we have at least the first iteration of a typed version of OTP that is fully compatible with Erlang's OTP. So we can use code written in Erlang that uses processors and actors and all this stuff. And the Erlang people can also hopefully use stuff that's written in Gleam that, you know, uses all the same things. And that, that's really exciting for me, at least. That is really cool because, you know, you'd mentioned that whole thing about like, oh, people say you can't have types, strong types in Erlang. And that's one of the things I'd heard as well. And really kind of came out of this idea that, especially when you're dealing with uh, multiple nodes in a clustered kind of situation, and like Mm. when you're dealing with distributed computing, being able to match the types and compiling across, that that is a very hard problem. And so I noticed that on your announcement, you're saying explicitly, we're not dealing with that problem. So maybe you could give a little bit of background as to why this is a hard problem and what you're doing about that. The thing about type checking and type inference is that you kind of need to know everything that's happening in the world. You need to be able to see all of the code that's running in this program. And if you're writing a program that runs on a single node, you know, it's all one code base. You you can see every single function call in every library and every data structure that's being defined. And then you can make sure those things are consistent by using these algorithms that, um, you know, much smarter minds than me have, have come up with over the last 30 years or so. But as soon as you've got 
distributed computing, this becomes a lot trickier because you don't have any way of knowing whether or not that the version of the code that's running on your node is going to be the same as the, the version that's running on the other node. At which point, what can you really do? Ideally, we would have a way of doing uh, type checking of both nodes. Um, but if they were compiled at different times, then like how how is that possible? Or maybe... But we just said we're not going to do anything about this for the moment. But there are there are things, some things that we could do, um, you know. And perhaps once we've got all the, the 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 basics of Glame OTP down, we can move on to more complicated things like distribution. So there's things you could do, such as maybe when you join a cluster, you could ask the node, "Hey, what version are you running? And what are all the types that are inside your program?" And then we could do some run t- runtime comparisons between, "Well, here's my set of types. Here are your set of types. Here's what you think the APIs are. Here's what I think the APIs are. And if when I join a cluster, those things don't." Unify, we say, okay, the, the join failed or the join was a partial success. You can only call these APIs. So that way you have a much safer way of doing distributed computing, but it, you have to make sure that you know everything that's going on. And this becomes even harder if you bear in mind that I could, after after you've joined the cluster, we all think it's fine. I, as a uh, as an operator, could join and I could just eval a bunch of um, Erlang code and inject a bunch of new modules and the whole thing falls apart. But, you know, I can't, I, I suspect we can't ever solve that one. But there's, there's a similar story for code upgrades as well. So, you know, it, that's another thing that's seen as quite difficult. And it's for the same reason. I know, say I'm um, compiling the upgrade. I know what all the types are of the, the, the next version, but I don't necessarily know what version it's going to be on the uh, machine that's being deployed to. So perhaps we could have another system where we we design a manifest that says, like, here's what we think the world is going to be like. And then when you try and do the upgrade, the first thing we do is we check to see the manifest and see if they match. And in that case, we could actually make hot code upgrades easier because one of the most difficult things about hot, hot code upgrade is how do you migrate the state from the old version to the new version? And it can be really hard to tell, like, what exactly was the state like? five versions ago on a node that's been running for two years and has been upgraded 40 times. Like who, who actually knows that? But if we have a type system, oh, actually, maybe we do know what that is. So that could be quite useful. So it sounds like you might benefit from like proto buff, but at the language level. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Just like, yeah. And, you know, every com- every compiled version of your application using Gleam is like just has an internal version of a schema or whatever type system, basically, but encoded into some proto buff and uh, distribution joins and hot code reloads would just have to ch- check each other's versions of the proto buffs and see how compatible they are. I don't know what it looks like at that level, though, uh, but that would be extraordinarily interesting, though. I think it's doable, which is really exciting because I sort of went, oh, I'm going to make, I'm going to, you know, type axes in one node and then everything else is impossible. But I recently I've gone, oh no, actually, I think someone, someone could do this. Probably, probably not me because it's going to, I've got a whole language to make at the moment, but you know, maybe we could make these APIs accessible to people to introspect types. And then someone could build these, these, these systems for joining clusters and doing upgrades. That would be super exciting and probably really valuable as well. Yeah, gosh, now I can't stop thinking about that protobuf at the language level. Like yeah. protobuf is something that you don't even touch, don't even think about until way down the line when you scale to that level where you have to have these kinds of concerns. But like, what if it were built into the language itself? All right, I'm gonna have to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I might also have to file a patent. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm not sure they hold. I mean, I'm in England, so does that mean I can just ignore that and <laughs> violate your rights? I'm not sure. I'll, I'll grant you a, la- a license. You're, you're, oh, you're thank fine. You. Thank you. <laughs> so one of the things you mentioned was this, that you're working a lot with Rust right now. Mm. And I am interested in just hearing how does Gleam actually work? Because you said Gleam actually can compile faster. And so mm. how does it actually work in terms of, you know, what's it written in? Way, way, way back, the first version of Gleam was written in Erlang. And it, it probably, if you've ever written a, a parser or anything, it used all the standard tooling, you know, used the Lex and Yak or whatever those modules are that I always yeah. forget what they're called. Um, which are great modules. Yeah. Yes, these ones, yes. And, the, and then we use the, then we use the CL module, I believe it's called, to generate core Erlang, which is an intermediate representation of the, uh, Erlang compiler, and then we just throw it through the back end of the Erlang compiler in order to get beam bytecode. So that worked really well for quite a while. The tricky bit was that the type inference algorithm that's being used inside Gleam actually, you know, it looks a lot like a whole bunch of mutable states because like, that's kind of the way you want to implement it. So I implemented this thing in, in Erlang by representing the mutable state as like an environment map, you know, that you pass around and you put things into. And this got really difficult. And this is quite a complicated algorithm that, you know, I'd never really implemented at, uh, you know, at this scale before. And it just got progressively harder and harder to iterate on the compiler. And I was like, oh, no, what's going on? And it turns out Erlang, this language that's wonderful for making network services and wonderful for making web applications, is kind of rubbish for writing compilers. I mean, people do do it, <laughs> but like, it's not what it is optimized for. You know, it's a, a compilers are about, you know, traversing a tree of lots of different kinds of node and like, keeping lots of states around and sort of like working out what how, how you need to switch things into different ways to da, 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 whatever. Um, this is not something that Erlang's particularly good for. So at some point I needed to make a big refactoring because I had worked myself into corner and I was looking at the refactoring going, I'm actually just not sure I'm going to be able to do this. Like this might actually be just a little bit too difficult. I was sort of learning as I went with this early version of Gleam, maybe three, three or four years ago. I sat down and I went, maybe it is time to, to have a version two of the compiler that would you know, imp- implement the same behavior, implement the same language, but it would be again. And I was like, should I redo this in Erlang or should I use another language? Because there are languages which are much more optimized for writing compilers. Ones that do have, um, well, one thing I wanted was a type system that could verify that I'm actually using the syntax tree correctly and something that had mutable states. So I, you know, I looked around and I said, well, there's Haskell and there's, there's OCaml and there's Rust and these are all lovely languages. And I decided to go for, for Rust. So the, the current version of, of the Gleam compiler is a program written in Rust that passes the source code using a similar system to the one I was using in Erlang, but it's it's a Rust library called Lala Pop or something like that. I'm not, I, I have no idea. It's got it's got a very funky name. Um, and then it's the same type inference algorithm, but this time we can use mutable states. And now it's much easier to work with, and it's much faster, and it's much less buggy, and you can refactor it much better. So that's fantastic. The main difference is that rather than outputting core Erlang, this intermediate representation, we output Erlang source files. So in the same way that TypeScript compiles to JavaScript, we we now compile to regular Erlang, which is actually kind of nice because it's much more approachable if people want to come to the compiler and add a new feature to it. They know what the Erlang should look like if they're an Erlang or Elixir programmer, so they can um, yeah get stuck in a little bit easier. That is interesting because you just have that idea of being able to kind of check your work and looking mm. at a human readable form. 
Yeah, and all, we've got we've got loads and loads of tests inside the Gleam compiler, and they all say like, here's a load of Gleam code, here's the Erlang code, and you can look at those, and it's really easy to understand, which is great. I want to say that I remember a tweet of yours right when you were doing the compiler switchover. Oh no, that <laughs> <laughs> that I might be misremembering misremember, mis here, but. It's one of those cases where you just do this big rewrite and all your tests pass and you're like, I swear, I, I still, that something's broken in here. Something's like massively broken here and all my tests are somehow lying to me that it's all passing. So kudos to you because I, I, I don't know the rest of that story, but I'm assuming things worked out since you have they a... Did, they did work yeah. out, but I, I don't think I should take any credit. I should not. I, and I, I think this is a testament to how well designed the, the Rust um, type system is. You know, it, they, they've done such a good job with, with this language where normally when we're writing Elixir, we keep bouncing against our tests and they say, no, you've done it wrong. And then you go and do it again. This thing kind of happens earlier with Rust. So like by the time you actually get to hitting your tests, the types have found most of the problems, which is really nice, um, especially if you're working in a, a big new code base that doesn't really have so many tests as I was when I was rewriting the Gleam compiler. So some of the things we've touched on just right there is how long you've been working on this. And mm. so this isn't a, you know, oh, I just thought I'd throw this together and see what happens. At this point, it's been going for some time. Can you give us a little bit of a background? Like how long you've been working on this? And is this just a personal project? It started originally just as me scratching an itch saying, oh, I've never written a my own programming language before. That would be really exciting. I'm going to try and have a go at that. And so I, you know, wrote this little prototype in Erlang. No, actually, no, that's a lie. What I actually did is I signed up for a conference, uh, one of the big Elixir conferences, and I said, I've written a language in Erlang <laughs> and I'm going to do a talk about it. And they said, okay, cool. You have a month. And I was like, cool, I better write this compiler now. <laughs> <laughs> So I, 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 I frantically managed to get it working and then I wrote a talk and it went really well and I, I had a great time. And this was back in, um, when was this? This was, this was back in like summer of 2016. And then I sort of left it alone for maybe a year or a year and a half or something. And then I, 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 think, I think I left a job and I you know, had a lot of free time on my hands because I was taking a break and I went, oh, you know, that project was really fun. Maybe I'll start doing this again. And then I, you know, looked at the code, realized it's rubbish, deleted everything, and then I started again. And since then, which was very early January in 2018, I've been working on this fairly solidly, either part-time around my work or for about a year and a half, two years of that. Um, I've been working on a full-time. First time round, I was just doing it myself for fun. Um, but the second time round, people were very kindly sponsoring me on, on GitHub sponsors. So I was still able to, you know pay rent <laughs> which was uh which was very helpful speaking of that um you know we we interviewed a, a guest not too long ago about sponsorship and i'm curious of what that story is like for you i know that you have github sponsors up and you you still have a you know an employer for full-time work but how, how does this relationship between like folks that sponsor your work on gleam and all the related things of gleam and then also full-time full-time work how's how does that work for you so i originally signed up to github sponsors just sort of because it was there and i never really envisioned that it was going to be useful in any way and then i i finished my i finished a contract that i had working for a for a bank for a year um and then i just went on twitter and went hey i'm i'm unemployed i think i'm gonna i'm gonna spend a bunch more time on gleam and oh look i've got this github sponsors thing so if you want to support me while i do that buy me a coffee or something 
And then I got loads of people signing up and I just found it really strange. I was like, why, why are you doing this? Is something happening? I've made some sort of mistake. What's going on? Um, people were very kind and, and lots of people did sponsor me, but you know, it, it's not the same amount of money that you would get by any, you know, it, the worst job I could find in London would pay more than the sponsorship I got. <laughs> So while I was able to continue doing uh, that for a whole bunch longer than I intended to, at some point I went, okay, I'm getting a bit broke now. I do need to actually uh, get a job. So if, uh, about a month ago, I started working again. And I'm, I'm hoping that I'm going to continue working as much as possible outside of work. Um, well, for as much as it is fun, I don't want to burn out or anything. And we've got lots of community members contributing code now. So that's really great. So it's more than just me working on this. And maybe in a, in a few years time when I leave this job, hey, then I get to do another full-time stint. Hopefully yeah. we'll, we'll see what happens. I remember thinking to myself around that time, gee, I wonder what it would be like if Louie worked for, I'm sure you can guess this, Facebook, <laughs> uh. <laughs> where, where it, it, there was a, I think, I don't know if it was just rumors at that point. I don't think, I don't know if it was announced yet, but we know now that WhatsApp has talked about a typed link version of, of Erlang. I've heard some folks call it uh, Erlang V2. I, I don't know mm. what the name is. And uh, yeah, I, and I, I, was, I know that that's going to overlap with Gleam in a way. I don't know what that looks like. So you, you didn't end up with Facebook. And I'm, maybe the uh, reasons are, are obvious <laughs> to, to some folks. But for me, I, I know that there's a lot of like, mm, I don't know, Facebook, eh, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know if I can morally work for them. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I think I remember you tweeting about that. But can you can you tell us a little bit about your thought? You don't have to talk about Facebook. Can you tell mm -hmm. me a, a little bit about your <laughs> thought of uh, about the typed Erlang that you've heard mm. about? Do you, do you know more than, than the public does? I think I used to know more because um, at, back when we were allowed to have conferences, you know, when you could like go to a place and be in person with people and, <laughs> yeah. and like shake it out. Do you remember that? Uh, it was I, weird, I, wasn't barely. it? It's, it's yeah. starting to disappear from my memory. Yeah. So I, I, I seem to recall that was a thing we did once. And I, I, you know, I found myself cornered at some point by some, you know, some very excited people from WhatsApp being like, hey, hey, we've got a secret. Do you want to know the secret? And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And they shared with me this plan of like, hey, we're going to make a typed Erlang. And I was like, wow, that's that's that sounds very familiar <laughs> yeah. how, how exciting um but i think that i think they've now sort of announced all of the things that they um hinted at me was going to happen um so uh, yeah I'm, I'm really excited to see what they're going to produce my theory is that they're going to take a different approach to to the one that gleam has so uh, earlier i spoke about typescript and how TypeScript is designed in such a way that you can incrementally apply it to a code base. And they do this through a type system that's referred to as like a gradually typed, um, you know, it's a gradually typed language. I think they're going to do the same thing because they've got this massive code base of WhatsApp. And if they don't have a good way to iterate at uh, moving code from a regular Erlang to Facebook Erlang, you know, it's not useful to them. So that's going to be one of the most important things for them. How, how do they get um, types across their whole code base as quickly as possible? And, you know, Gleam might not be quite so good for that. I'm really hoping that, you know, in the same way that Gleam, you know, Gleam's not competing with Elixir, Gleam's not competing with Erlang. You know, I'm trying to, we're trying to bring people to the beam. What we really want is, is people who wrote Elm, you know, and, you know, normally they write like maybe a JavaScript backend if they need a backend to go with their Elm front end. You know, now they can say, oh, well, there's that, there's that Gleam thing. Maybe I should use that instead. And now we're pulling more people over to the beam. I'm hoping that the WhatsApp 
project would do the same thing as well. And and as far as I'm concerned, more people thinking in terms of types is is a good thing. I do have a question about Gleam's ability to integrate with Elixir, because I am aware mm. that I can have Gleam-specific code that can call an Elixir code, and likewise, Elixir can call Gleam. So can you maybe talk about that uh, compatibility there? I think the best way to look at it is to first look at the relationship between Erlang and and Gleam, because Gleam is designed to tie in as well as possible to Erlang. If you're writing a Gleam module, uh, you can import an Erlang function, give it a type annotation and call it, no problem. If you're writing an Erlang module, you can just call a Gleam function like a normal one. You don't need to do anything special to call it. So that works really well. But the story is a little bit different with Elixir. So Elixir, I think wasn't trying as much to make it so that you can call Elixir from Erlang. It's very easy to call Erlang from Elixir, but it's harder to go the other way around for two reasons. The first reason is that the standard library is sort of part of the language. And there's a few things in the Elixir language which makes it harder to compile outside of an Elixir project. The main one is protocols. When you compile for production usage of Elixir, you need to do a second pass and compilation, which is when you can seal data to all your protocols. Um, so you compile each module individually independently and then you do another part over the end to like make sure everything's nice and fast when you're using enum and and inspect and all that stuff erlang doesn't have anything like this and none of the erlang build tools know how to do this which means that if you're trying to use elixir from erlang and as a result if you're trying to use elixir from gleam you now need to add this extra step to your um your build tool which is which is kind of tricky the other thing is that Elixir's got this really amazing metaprogramming capabilities, um, you know, which is wonderful. That's one of the reasons why we love Elixir. But that certainly means you've got all these APIs that are about macros. And if you're in a language that doesn't have macros, those APIs don't work anymore. There's no way to use Ecto from Erlang. Not in not in any useful way. You can't you can't build queries. You'd have to build the underlying data structure, which is something that's never designed to be worked with directly. And it might it might not even be a public API. I'm not sure. So people say, hey, can I use Ecto from Gleam? I was like, no, you can't use it from Erlang either. It's not really a problem with Gleam. It's like Elixir, in order to achieve these really great things, has sacrificed some other things. And that is this direction of of compatibility. I think you're asking the question from an Elixir user's point of view. And so, you know, you're lucky. You can add as much Gleam code to your project as you want, and it's all going to work. That's going to be awesome. I'm in a slightly more awkward position. If I want to, if I want to start using Ecto, I'm, I'm stuffed, really. I can't, I can't really do anything about that. But that's okay. One of the things that Quinn talked about was this idea of being able to build business logic out of Gleam you know, which is not dealing with Ecto. I've already resolved my types. I've got my stuff loaded from the database. And then I can go into my business logic, which might be implemented in Gleam. And I have a lot of my type safety and my other checks there. So do you feel like that's a good uh, direction to come at it from? I think all of these things kind of depend upon, you know, what are the set of constraints you're working on? And for for how Quinn works and, and the stuff that she was working on, that really made sense where she she had this thing that was more complicated and she wanted to have this extra help from the compiler in that area. But then she wanted to work with um, LiveView and all these really great libraries for doing IO and, and interaction with the user that you've got inside Elixir. So that really works for her. Me, I'm, you know, I'm very invested in Gleam, oddly enough. So I want to, I want to write everything in Gleam because that's, that's how I enjoy working. And I'm going to sacrifice some of those libraries. You know, I don't have LiveView. 
that's a bummer, but okay, I don't have live view. But then I'm like, oh, but now I have type checked, um, you know, IO functions. That's a benefit. So, you know, it comes down to what you want to do, but there's lots of ways that we can use these tools together. And that's one of the reasons why we focus so much on, on making the interrupt story as good as possible. So you can choose how you want to use this. And also you can experiment. You can try adding a little bit to your Elixir application. You go, oh, actually Gleam's rubbish. I don't want to use this anymore. And then you can do one of two things. You can do one of three things. You can just ignore it and never touch it again. And hopefully it'll continue working. You can delete it and rewrite it in, in Elixir. Or you can ask the compiler to compile it into Erlang for you. And then you can maintain the Erlang instead of maintaining the Gleam and don't have to worry about um, this this new thing ever again. The point you made about Ecto not being necessarily usable by Erlang and Gleam. I've heard that also from Erlang. And that was the first time I'd kind of really realized the difficulty that macros put on other Beam languages. And hopefully that is something that we can solve just in terms of, you know, there's been a concerted effort to try and make things like uh, telemetry and other things like that be more accessible to all languages. So I would hope that maybe we can create some APIs that do make Ecto more accessible to other Beam languages like Erlang and Gleam. I think that'd be awesome. But uh, mm. yeah, so that is, that is a current challenge we have. I think that Ecto is a, is a very extreme example because this, this query DSL is, is, is so powerful. But most of the APIs that use macros, they're kind of convenience-based. Mm -hmm. And actually, there is a way to use it if you are willing to sacrifice some of that you know, prettiness that we've come to expect in Alexa. And I think over time, all the different Beam languages are getting better at, at, at you know, um, they're always friendly to each other, but I think they're now getting better at building things with each other in mind. So if you look at Plug, it's got a few macros. Uh, for example, the Plug macro that you can use inside a router, which gives you a way of composing multiple plugs into one big plug. That couldn't be used from Erlang because you can't call this macro. So in a recent version of Plug, they've added a functional version of it, which still can't be used from Gleam because there's no way to write a type signature for it. But oh, oh well, close <laughs> enough. But now you can use it from Erlang. And um, there is a, a small Gleam module as well, which provides a little interface between Plug and Gleam. So I hope, you know, from now on, we can start embedding Gleam applications into Plug applications. And maybe in the future, we could do it the other way around. We could like write some interesting wrapper around Plug, and then I can use all these great plugs that are already available inside my Gleam program. So I would love to hear what future plans you have for Gleam and where you think things can go from here. I'm very happy to say it's all quite boring from now on out, I think. I, I think all the exciting things of like, oh, we've made, we're going to make a language. It's going to have these things. It's kind of stabilized. I think as a language, it has more or less reached a point where it's, you know, quite mature. And, you know, it, it's not version one, so things may change, but it looks like a real language and has most of the things you'd want. There's only one big feature, as it were, that we haven't implemented yet, and that is exhaustiveness checking. But we know exactly what that is. And at some point, we're going to, you know, spend a lot of time reading a lot of quite difficult computer science papers and emerge from our bedroom several several months later, hopefully with a working implementation. Um, but we know what it is. So it, it, it's, it's very easy to predict. And if you're writing your code well, it shouldn't cause you any problems when it's released. You mentioned there we. Do mm. you have a number of contributors? Are you looking for people to help join in with this? 
uh, I'm always looking for people to to join in. I re- I really really think that projects are much more useful and fun and valuable if other people are getting involved. I probably wouldn't still be doing this if it was just me by myself. I probably would have lost interest and decided to make something else. Um, so we've got a we've got a, a small bunch of familiar faces who have been making regular contributions or, you know, either code or documentation or um, writing clean programs or just hanging out in the, in the Discord channel. And then all the time we've got people who sort of like, you know, turn up and express an interest and they will either write a program or they'll pick up a small ticket and, and, and run with it. I'm trying to, as much as possible, make it really easy for people to, to get involved. So if you look at our issue tracker on GitHub, um, we've got lots of issues that are marked as being good first ones to pick up or ones that we want help on. They're a little bit light on context because, well, I've got a I've got a full-time job now, so I spend less time writing tickets than I did before. But if you say, hey, this sounds interesting, I'd, I'd like to know more about this, I'm very happy to, to walk people through, um, you know, how they might start to approach it or, or um, what an implementation might look like. And I, I feel quite lucky in that lots of people are, you know, t- are taking me up on that and I, and I get to work with lots of interesting people on building this language. That's great. Is there anything else you'd like to mention or plug about Gleam and what you're working on before we close? Uh, I, th- I think we've covered most of it, really. Um, it, if anyone's listening and they think this sounds cool, please do drop on our Discord server, which I'm sure there'll be a link to somewhere, and and try and make something or, or try and contribute to building the language. Uh, I must say, building a language is really fun. And um, I, as I said, I don't have a computer science background. So that moment when I went, oh, a compiler is just a program and I work on programs and I can do this. That's great. That felt awesome. And all these things that felt kind of magic, like how do languages, how does my code make something happen? You know, like on the really fundamental level, when I, when I got over that hump, it was, it was um, super fun and super rewarding. So if anyone wants to dig into something that's seen as a bit more computer sciencey, but spoilers isn't, um, yeah, come and come and hack on the compiler. That's pretty funny. That's the boat I've lived in for a long time. It's like compilers. No, Mm. I did. I did SQL for college. I didn't do real computer science. You've got to be a Haskell developer or a C++ developer to write compilers, surely. Exactly. You've got, you've got to be special. No, (laughs) No, they're great. (laughs) I I wonder if somebody's written a compiler in SQL. (laughs) What would that look like? Oh, don't tempt Uh, me. I was at one point trying to make a compiler that turns CSS into a Turing complete language so you could write a backend in it. <laughs> just, sort of, just sort of out of spite oh. of everyone is like, CSS is rubbish. I was like, I quite like CSS. I'm going to show you. Your spite apparently is a very powerful motivator. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never finished it, so maybe, maybe you're not that powerful, but okay. um, it's, it's, I like it. Well, Louis, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and share with us more about the background of Gleam and how it's challenging some of these interesting ideas and broadening the, the whole ecosystem of the Beam, which I think is awesome. And I think the exploration of static types does have a lot to offer. So if people want to follow you online or get in contact with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, so we've got a, a a newly formed Discord server, which is surprisingly active. I'm I'm really enjoying it actually. So you hop on there and and um, you know come and chat with us, 
Or if you just want to follow what's going on, there is a Gleamlang Twitter account, um, or there is my personal Twitter account, which is, you know, a combination of Gleam and um, pictures of cats and me getting grumpy about politics and things. So, you know, (laughs) whatever flavor of interaction you're interested in, there's an option for you. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir. If people want to start working with Gleam, is there a particular editor or anything like that that has good support? Or what is the interaction for like, how do I actually write Gleam code and and run it? So all the editor port is fairly basic at the moment. We've got a plugin for Emacs, one for Vim that I was using for a long time. And we've also got integration with the Vim plugin Neo format. So it automatically runs the uh, Gleam formatter for you. Um, I've very recently switched from um, Linux and Mac to Windows in part so I can support people on Windows because people would submit bugs saying, I'm on Windows, I've got a problem with Gleam, and I'd be like, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> so now I'm, now I'm on Windows, but it turns out Vim doesn't work on Windows, so I'm using VS Code, and I'm very happy to report that the, the VS Code plugin works pretty well as well. And then the youngest one is a Sublime Text plugin, which I've not tried yet, um, but... It does exist. So any of the usual editors seem to do okay. And I'm hoping that in the near future, we can start to work on um, having language server protocol implemented inside the compiler. In fact, someone has actually already started working on this, one of the contributors. So hopefully in the not so distant future, you'll be able to pick up your your editor of choice, so long as it's one of the main ones that knows how to interact with a language server. And then we'll have all those fancy IDE features inside inside your editor in the same way that you would if you're writing uh, Java or Rust or any of these things.